Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. Let's get started. Jeff Evanson is a 1990 graduate of West Point and holds an MBA from Washington University in St. Louis. He's spent over a decade in, in the corporate world trading stocks for brokerage firms, managing portfolios for a boutique investment manager, managing pension funds, and facilitating acquisitions at a Fortune 50 company. His passion is business ownership. He has owned, operated, and exited several companies from hair salons to aerospace manufacturers to smoothie shops. Boy, that's a broad range. He's currently an acquisition and acceleration coach, helping other people build generational wealth through business acquisition and ownership. Jeff recently married, and he and his wife have seven above-average kids between the ages of 19 and 25. I am so excited to have you on the program, Jeff. Thanks, Corey. Good to see you. Thanks for me. Thanks for having me. Listen, so you know, definitely just from the bio, we can tell you have a background in, in owning, operating, exiting a number of businesses, not to mention your corporate background, and then obviously all the experience you have and what you do in terms of coaching and consulting other business owners now. But before we get to all of that, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is a deals guy, an M&A guy, a coaching consultant, or maybe most of these things you've done probably wasn't it back then, but you tell me. No, you're right. Great question. I don't know that I knew what I wanted to be. I feel like I was uh, in a position where I was a natural leader of humans. And I was fortunate that during that time, I had my dad's, my dad was a psychologist, which probably had some impact on me as a kid growing up. But I think his take on raising us, me and my three brothers were, was really very positive and you can be who you want to be thing. And I was able to watch him lead other people too, which was probably inspired me to pursue leadership opportunities as a middle school, high school kid, and then ultimately have an opportunity to go to West Point and learn the official way to to lead humans. And and I think, honestly, Corey, I've spent the rest of my life trying to get back to small unit leadership, which is what you learn at West Point. Yeah, I love that. I'm going to be interested to talk a little bit more about the, the lessons uh, that you applied from there. One other mm-hmm. question looking back, though, what is your first deal of any type? Could have been something small when you were a kid or, or early in your career. Any early deal that you remember? Yeah, I don't remember doing much on the on the deal side as a child, but but I, ultimately, I think coming out of the army, I got into a an oddball kind of opportunity to do some some networking, physical, local area networking for a small business, and a buddy of mine and I decided that it was probably an opportunity for us to make a couple bucks by installing computers in a law firm and installing computers in a construction company. 
and I, God help me, if those machines are still around, it, it's very unlikely. And what kind of security issues there were with us doing it, because we had no idea what we were doing. And it was all about convincing somebody else to allow us to make it happen. That was really my first foray into kind of creating my own little business. And ironically, that guy ended up being my partner in the uh, machine shop in a later date. Um, oh, that's funny. And I know it wasn't mentioned specifically in your bio, but I know in our Pre-call, we discussed a little bit about the, your experience with business partnerships. So was that your first business partnership? Yeah, it, was, it actually was. And and it probably was a, a harbinger for how they might go down the road because he lost interest in the deal. I I don't know that I kept interest, but it wasn't exactly... I was in a position where I was holding the bag at the end of it to try and make something of it. We made a couple bucks. It was a great some great stories to tell. And, and I feel like that's mantra is you make a couple bucks and have some good stories to tell. And that's not a bad, that's not a bad life. So. I love it. So I, I wasn't planning on starting it, but since we're here, let's talk about the business part. So you said you went back into business with this guy later, even though he's left you all the bag. And I know it was a, you were kids back then and whatever, but let's, what are some of those business lessons that you've learned from business partnerships in general? And tell us, well, you know, it's it, that was significant. Yeah. I think more than anything, I think that partnerships change from the minute they start. I think all partnerships are rose-colored and exciting and we're going to change the world from the jump, right? Like we all get into them and we're excited about coming together and, hey, I really like this guy or this gal and this is going to work. And we all see the vision. We can see around the corners and how it's going to all go and what it's going to look like. The biggest concern we have is how we're going to split this big pile of money. And, oh my gosh, I want to make sure that you get your millions and, and hey, take your millions. I'm good with splitting however we split it, that kind of thing. What we don't talk about too much is the downside of those things and what's going to happen if X happens and what are we going to do if Y happens. And and I'm very I'm very cautious about making sure that you contemplate the things that could potentially go wrong. I think it's super important to, and I don't mean to make, to be dour. I'm, I just recently, like I said, recently got married. We didn't start from, okay, how are we going to split all our things up one day when we divorce? That's just, I'm not that guy. But at the same time, when you're going through a business partnership, I'm even more concerned about those things. What happens if you die? What happens if you divorce? What happens if you are disabled and not able to to work for the company. How do we split up the responsibilities of actually operating the company from the values of being owners? And those are two different kind of things to contemplate. What if you you get distracted and you just decide that you don't want to do this anymore? And so it's all the D's, right? Disinterest, divorce, disability, death, all the disappearance. What are the D's that you can document? And I'm really big about, I think the biggest lesson I've learned over the last 25, 30 years is that you really have to document those things and think about the potential downsides and make sure that, yes, it'd be great to take that document after you document all those things and stick it in a drawer and never have to look at it again. But I'm betting that you probably will have to. So contemplate those things up front. Talk about what does it look like when somebody exits a company? I'm a big believer in a shootout clause. I think the shootout clause is probably the best tool for operating agreements and partnership agreements that exists because I think that makes a, it makes you think hard about making an offer to somebody else if you know that you have to sit on those terms and eat that offer coming back at you if that person doesn't want to sell. Yeah. So just, just to get, just for our, we have such a broad range of listeners as this podcast mm-hmm. is grown and some of them are very sophisticated. 
some of them are newer to deal making. So mm-hmm. let, let me just uh, give a little, wh- why don't you do it? Explain shootout clause for the folks that don't know what it is. Yeah, shootout clause, I think, is really an elegant solution to its buy-sell agreement. The way it's set up is that if Corey and I own a, a million-dollar asset and we're 50-50 owners, if I make an offer to Corey, I have to be willing to accept that same offer if he chooses not to sell his share. So if I say to Corey, I'm going to buy your, I'd like to buy your shares for 250 grand, rather than Corey just being frustrated and saying, no, thank you. And now we're in this awkward relationship because I've made a low ball offer to him. He can turn around and say, no, I'm going to buy your shares for 250 and I'm out. Yeah. So it's a really, you know, it, it really makes you a consider whether you want to make an offer <laughs> and B it forces you to make a fair offer because you have to be willing to eat those same terms. Yeah, it's great. That's one of the many things we use in appropriate situations. And all of this, we call it when we, because we do a lot of shells, agreements, operating agreements, and partnership agreements, all that kind of stuff with clients. Mm-hmm. And all these what ifs, right? Death, disability, interest, you want to separate, a crucial to cover. And obviously, since in large part, nobody knows who it's going to impact going forward. Obviously, getting that done in the beginning before there's a triggering event that right. you know, makes it much easier to do it in a fair way because you don't know who it's going to impact. Let's talk a little bit about, because I'm interested, and I could be totally off air. I did not go to West Point. I did not <laughs> serve the military. So this is perception. But you, you always hear in the military, there's a chain of command, right? That chain of command at various points as somebody where the buck stops, right? You know, sure. uh, and, but in a business partnership, the other thing you have to figure out is in addition to all those what ifs is, Hey, while we're operating this business together, how are decisions made? Yeah, sure. And there are different entrepreneurial theories out there about that. They're sometimes said nice ways where you need one leader, or some people say you need one neck to ring or what yeah, to put it. Yeah. So talk about the contrast. If there is one, there, there definitely is one of those theories. I don't know if, you know, your military experience, U.S. point experience, plays into that as well. But business partnerships are interesting things because on the decision-making question. Yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right, Corey. I think that the challenge that you have is that so many people conflate ownership with operational control. Right. And if you conflate those two things, you're in trouble because what inevitably happens is one person may be, has the expertise to operate in this particular business. They may have a machining background, and and now that you own a machining company, they have this ability to schedule work, and they have this ability to quality check, and they have all these capabilities. So now they're doing 75% of the work in their eyes, and the partner is doing 25% of the work, and they're just doing administrative stuff, and it's not terribly, to them, it's not as heavy a load as, hey, this is mission critical stuff that has to get done in order for us to get product out the door. So that imbalance that happens when on the operational side could have two 50-50 partners looking at each other and getting a little upset with each other because, hey, I'm doing all the work and you're just doing the books. And I firmly believe that you need to separate the operational decision-making and all those things and remuneration for those those roles from your remuneration from being partners. And if I'm a 50-50 partner, we're going to split the spoils and we're going to pay ourselves what we're going to pay ourselves. We're going to split the profits at the end of the year or what have you. But operationally, you're the chief operating officer and I'm the chief admin officer. Chief operating officer is worth 120 grand a year and the chief admin officer is worth 60. Okay, I'm good there. So I, I think that solves for some of those concerns that come down the pike with uh, decision-making. I'm a, I'm a 
believer that somebody needs to own 51% of the company. And that has, that's, that can be, that can be a bad thing for the guy who doesn't, but there are shared minority shareholder rights and things that, that, you know, can protect you. I'm a big believer that there are, there are some clauses that you can put into an operating agreement to protect that minority partner. And then so that the, the 51 or 60 or not 75% guy doesn't destroy that minority shareholder. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously we do a lot of that stuff and it's always interesting on the beginning and listen, there are plenty of times, obviously from a legal point of view, from a practical point of view, from an exit and separation point of view, that 51% is important. And there are sometimes where people are just like, listen, we're not, we're going 50-50 to deal with it. And it does raise, does raise issues, but you're right. There's so many ways to, to address it. And if, and to be fair, if you definitely want to be 50-50, now you can be 51-49 from an ownership standpoint and still split the profits 50-50. That's correct. That's, LLCs allow you to do those things. But, but also if you wanted to go 50-50, you better have a dispute resolution clause that, that explains how do you have to solve what do you, how do you solve when Corey and I can't agree who's going to be the decision maker? It may be that on everything that's related to X, Y, and Z, Corey gets to make the decisions. On A, B, and C, Jeff gets to make the decisions. Okay, maybe that's the way we solve it. Maybe it's an outside party. I, I don't know. But some dispute resolution has to be part of that agreement. So. Yeah, no question about it. All right, let's talk a little bit. Your bio is very interesting from hair salon to aerospace to smoothie <laughs> shop. We've had a lot of guests on this podcast. A lot of them have a lot of deal experience. Rarely do you see somebody with that broad of a kind of across industries. Before we get into lessons from all that stuff, just give us a little background. Let's hear the stories of how, how did you end up in these various businesses? Yeah, it's always funny, and especially a bald guy owning a hair salon is always a fun <laughs> part of that story. The first deal came about, I was actually working at a big international brewer in their deal department. And my wife at the time was a an attorney who was operating a hair salon. Uh-huh. So she had left the private practice attorney world and become the general manager of a hair salon. I jokingly said that we <clears throat> were in an opportunity to buy the hair salon, which was actually cheaper than her going there all the time. But that aside, we so we had an opportunity to acquire the business. The seller, the, the owner of the business had become absentee. And my ex-wife now, my wife at the time was made a statement that she was either going to go off and start her own thing, either a law firm or a hair salon, or she wanted to the, the, be an owner. And so the, the owner of the business opted to sell. My, my wife at the time said that she was going to exonerate herself from the deal part of it because she was operating the company. So she felt like there was a conflict there. I came in as the deal conversation with the seller. And we actually went to a mediator and sat down with him and came to an agreement on a price. We bought the company and she had tons of internal experience on how to run the company. I brought the financial acumen to the deal and that was a good, a good combination. We, we opened a second location of that business and just to rewind a second, the, the hair salon was doing about three and a half, four million million in sales. And so it wasn't like a two-chair hair salon. It was a pretty big operation with 65 employees or something like that. We opened a second location of that business and that was we bought the business in 2008, opened a second location in 11, and then we bought a manufacturing company, a very small manufacturing company that was part of our supply chain mm-hmm. in 2015. And like I said, I exited those companies through a divorce, which is a way to exit a company. And we did that in 2018. In the interim... I did, I was part of a startup group that started a smoothie shop franchise and we, we built out 
five stores in about 14 months in the St. Louis area. And, and we had Missouri and Kansas territory. And my owner had, or my part, one of my partners in the deal had more money than patients. And he went out and bought 127 stores in California. And so he rolled up our business into that. And ultimately he actually sold that business a couple of years ago. That was, we started that business in around 2013 as we, I was still an owner of the uh, salon business. So that was a, that was super interesting. That was a, a startup deal and exited that business. When he bought the California shops, I exited the business then. And then the machine shop opportunity was something as I was going through the divorce, I didn't, I was, I knew I was going to be a free agent at the end of the year kind of thing at the end of 2018. And I'd been talking with this guy who I, like I said, had been, had a business venture with 20 years prior. And I actually went to West Point with him. We were, we, we knew each other for a long time. And, and so he came to me and said, Hey, there's a, a guy who's selling his company. He's got a buyer out of Dallas. That's, and, and he wants somebody locally to run the business. I was wondering if you wanted, if I ran it, if you wanted to come in and be my number two. And I said, that sounds like fun. I'm, don't know what I'm going to do at the end of the year anyway, so let's consider it. And he said, but I haven't heard from the buyer in about a, a month, so I don't know exactly what's going on. And I said, tell him we'll buy it. And he shook his head like, how, how do we do that? And I said, I know how to do that, so let's make that happen. Ultimately, that deal came together and we bought that business in tw- May of 2019, but I exited that business in December of 2020 through lessons learned in the partnership side, we'll call it. <laughs> Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. I love it. All right. I'm tempted to swing back to the partnership side, but I'm going to save that for, for a second. Let's stay on the M&A side. You, you alluded to having done M&A and deal stuff, being on the deal side on when you were employed in, in, in the company. You mentioned the hair salon situation with your wife at the time. You mentioned a franchise all right, situation. You mentioned a startup, right? So you've seen like not only operating business, but also deals from a number of perspectives, right? Yeah. You know, it's different when you're a deal guy at a big company. It's franchises are different than than, than other businesses, right? So sure. talk to me a little bit. I'm always fascinated. I remember, uh, you know, I we do stuff on the buy side, on the sell side. You know, I, I remember even when I left big law and started my own firm, and I had this vision of, you know, how I could do things differently and better and all the things they did wrong. And, you know, I would say probably 80% of that was, I was right on. Like I, I did, uh, like I did, it was legitimate issues with the way I thought big law operated and the way I could do it better. But then it was maybe 20%, I don't know, it was 10%, it was some percentage, right? When I got on the other side, I was, oh, now I understand why. So talk to me a little bit about the different perspectives you've had and maybe what you've learned along the way, maybe what you thought was, you know, true in one role, but then you realized in another context that you got more insight in. Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a really interesting question. I think that, I think one of the things that we, especially when you're in the corporate M&A world and and I was uh, working for a beer brewer and we were basically reviewing deals of the beer distributors all over the country. When a distributor would buy a territory from their neighbor or sell to their kid or whatever the deal was, they had to review the deal with the, with the brewery. And what, so I was coming from a place where 
we had our models and our math models were, our Excel models were really tight and we forecast your cash flows and then look at the discounted cash flow, but da, 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 and, you know, all multiple and all, all this stuff. And it was all pretty and it worked just like it did at Harvard, just like it did in, in B school. <laughs> and, and that's all great on a hundred million, you know, $150 million deal. But at the end, it all comes down to what one person's willing to pay and what one person's willing to accept. And so your models can be a lot of fun and they can tell you all kinds of things and they get, but they get less and less relevant as you get down the food chain of how big the deal is. I do, I, I do a lot of coaching in the M&A space now on the main street kind of level, very small business owner or business transactions. And, and I find it cute's probably a mean word, but I find it interesting that people will have their big models and I'm like, bro, that's not going to matter. You can model this out all you want. In the end, and they talk about multiples. I'm willing to pay 3.75, but I'm not willing to pay four. And I'm like, does the debt service coverage ratio meet what the bank's willing to loan you on the deal? Bottom line, that's the question. So I think the most interesting difference and nuance between the deal world that I've been in is all the MBA, this kind of cash flow game, that's all interesting and it's all theoretical. In the end, it, it matters what someone's willing to pay and what someone's willing to accept. And there's, in my opinion, the ability to to meet a seller at their price or near their price is at least 50% rapport. And some portion of it, obviously, is whether the bank's going to do the deal or not, period, in the story. Or whether you're willing to put your commit your capital to the deal and get a return on your capital. But a lot of it's rapport, man. If you've got a seller and they don't, it, you, I, I use the term or I use the phrase that people don't want to sell their companies to a jerk. You don't usually use the term jerk, but that's just the truth. Like people don't want to sell their business to somebody who they don't think is going to respect the legacy that they built. And so if you can't build a rapport with somebody and get yourselves to a place where you both agree on a price, then you're never going to get a deal done. Yeah. So. Let's delve into that a little more on that because, listen, every deal, even in the very large deals, there are non-financial factors, right? Even, sure. Even though the number crunches that run their models or whatever and the multiples or whatever, which is a big, bigger part of the bigger deals, there's, there's, there's non-financial factors there as well. But certainly as you get down into the middle market, low middle market, and then mainstream businesses, in my experience, the non-financial factors even <laughs> become a bigger piece they of swamp it, right? you, You've alluded to a couple of them, just liking their buyer and legacy. You mentioned legacy quickly. Hmm. What else do you see, or, or even a little more on those points? What are those non-financial factors that come in? I've seen the craziest things. Like I talked to others, I guess, a couple of times about saving a deal just because I recognize that the that what was holding it up, it wasn't logical. What was holding it up was that the seller just didn't want to have no place to go. So they yeah. let him keep an office, right? They let him keep an office. He had no title. And actually, they gave him a chairman emeritus title. So he felt yeah. like he had something. Nice. And they let him keep his office. And that's what got the deal done, right? And that, there's just a small example of what happens more, much more often on a Main Street deal than on a big deal. So what are some of those other factors or stories that come up that are non-financial? And he's got a smaller... Yeah. Deals. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly those things. I think that the, I like the thought that some deals just crater on the guy, not the seller, not having contemplated what happens the day after he sells a company, right? A lot of times they don't have any idea and that's something to get to the bottom of. And when you're in those seller meetings, so many people want to go into those seller meetings with just coming in hot. They send me your financials. I want to see tax returns. And man, just like 
The conversation has to be all about the seller talking about waxing poetic about why they started the business, what, how they built this legacy, how they built this business over time, what their people are like, and then how they're going to transition. And so it's my, my view is if you can talk to sellers about just having them tell stories as opposed to asking for specifics on financials or, Hey, I saw that last quarter you spent this much on advertising. And I don't think in, in your initial seller calls, none of that stuff should come up unless it naturally comes up. And from a non-financial standpoint, I would say that legacy is a big one. Keeping their name on the building or the name of the company, something that they built, they don't want that changed immediately. Maybe you do it down the road, but initially that's to come in and claim that you're going to make these big sweeping changes. Guess what? Seller would have made those changes if they thought they were the changes to make. If it, alienating a seller during a conversation, during a, uh, a pre-LOI or even during due diligence is just foolish because all you're really doing is making people mad. I think another non-financial issue is treatment of employees. And I think that if you can, if a seller knows that the people that they have relationships with and they find found meaningful, they didn't hire these people for the fun of it. They hired them because they thought they were useful and they'd been working for them for years because they thought they were useful. And for you to treat them like a number or just to say, oh yeah, we can cut this cost and we can do X, Y, to me is just, again, foolish and, and gar- not necessarily guaranteeing, but, but expressing that you have every intention of letting the business continue to operate. The business that you're buying has value because it's been operating, unless you're buying a turnaround, any business that has value has been operating in some fashion that's put together a profit somehow, some way, and the seller has some role in creating that value. And so respecting that value and, re- and respecting that role is super important. And to ignore it, you do it at your own peril, frankly. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. Some, sometimes it's it's really how you present it. And I'm not saying, I'm not talking about spin or whatever, because I think mm-hmm. people sense authenticity, mm-hmm. but there's a difference between, listen, so on the one hand, there's value, unless the turnaround, there's, there's value in the company you're buying. On the other hand, you probably wouldn't be buying it unless you th- thought you could add additional value. So there's, there's one approach that goes in and, and could talk to the seller about all of the opportunities they missed or the things that are wrong or whatever, and, and that's not going to be good. Or you can have that same conversation about the future opportunities of growth as a way of preserving and expanding, right? Like, yeah. And building on the shoulders of what this great entrepreneur did up until now and how we can even broaden your legacy and, and make the company have bigger impact beyond what you've been able to do and just building on. And you're saying you do the same thing, right? You're saying, hey, there's one, there's value here. Two, we can create additional value, additional impact on opportunity. But there's a difference between approaching it from we're going to be standing on everything you built. And you did a good, great job. We can take it to the next level. And oh, look at all these opportunities you didn't take advantage of along and we're going no, to fix it. You're absolutely right. I think that, and I think too many people come in there, like I said, guns ablazing. Yeah, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to do, you missed this opportunity or you should have been doing this or or whatever. And, and just saying, being able to be socially aware enough <laughs> to know that if you were in that person's shoes and you heard somebody criticizing the way you were running the company, that it would just be off-putting. And so it, there is a balance. There is a, there's a, an authenticity detector that goes with it. You can't be blowing smoke up people's butts just because you feel like that's, oh, I have to say this in a nice way. I would say also that business owners know where the opportunities lie in many cases, and they're either 
unwilling or unable to make that make a commitment to to take advantage of those opportunities, leaning on them to ask for their advice and to really use their wisdom to to help grow the company is a welcome thing because they feel like they have an opportunity to help you do what they were what they would have liked to do and do it better and and everything. So there, I would say that most sellers are pretty humble, yeah. and and you have to match that humility as a buyer. Because if you don't, it's really off-putting and frankly, will kill a deal in a minute. Yeah, and, and that's a great point that it's often, at least some of the things that, that the opportunities is that they haven't, it's not like they never saw them, they, sure. but for reasons they didn't pursue them, right? Especially at the Main Street level, right? They could be, I, if I just had some additional capital, but, I, but I'm not, or frankly, listen, I know that would... Business is going well. I know I have this opportunity here with increased risk. I got two kids in college and right. you know whatever and the, and the family and I'm not willing to take that risk and they recognize it. In fact, that's some of the reasons why sometimes people choose to sell because they sure. recognize that there are opportunities and they're just not the ones to take advantage of it, whether it's because of the risk level or just their time it'll take or just maybe they are self-aware enough that they don't have the skills to land the skills an ability to build it to a certain level, but not beyond that because they haven't yeah. scaled the business that way. Yeah. So to make an assumption that I think that's a great point to acknowledge that in many cases, they actually know about a lot of these opportunities, but there are legitimate reasons in terms of their own lives and their own personalities or whatever it is that they haven't chosen to take advantage of it. Yeah, right. totally. And, and you don't know their circumstances in a lot of cases, and you want to tease that out of people. It might be that the, the, I thought about this, but my, my husband wasn't doing well health-wise. And so I wanted to focus more on on his health. And and so that took me away from, there's tons of reasons. Like we all, everybody has their stuff, right? They're, and they're coming to that and they're you're laying them open bare when you're talking about selling their company because you're digging through and seeing all the stuff, right? Like you, you look at it and you're like, huh, yeah, I would do this differently. I would do that differently. But to do that in a, to lack humility in that process, I think would be a deal breaker pretty quickly. So you just have to approach it in the right way and and understand that we all we all have the reasons for some of the things we do. And it's not out of stupidity or incapability that they're that they chose not to pursue some kind of growth pattern. It's because of something else. And, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. And so let's talk a little more specifically about what, what you're doing now. We mentioned that coach consult work with companies to help them grow, create enterprise value and exit and, and do deals. Yeah. And obviously, you've got a lot of background in this from the various aspects of it. So talk to me about the, the kind of clients you work with, any specific industries, size. We alluded to this a little bit. So just people get a better feel for what you're doing now. Great. Thanks. Yeah. So I work with, I, I have two different pieces of my coaching business. One is helping people who dog catches car, right? Now I've got this company. Now what? Helping people implement business operating systems to, to get those well-seated and, and uh, develop a, a way to uh, work on your business instead of in your business every day. Whether that's a person who's owned their business and founded it 25 years ago and, and just needs to put some operating system in place, or it's somebody who just bought a company and now they need to really discern, how do I take these next steps? What am I going to do? We talk a lot about buy, grow, then sell. And we don't spend a whole lot of time on the grow piece. We think of it as this black box of every, you just buy the company and then you sell it later for more. It's, a, okay, yeah, great. it's not a flip. It doesn't work that way very often. In, in, no, in, no, we're not just stepping into the rental property and then throwing some new carpet down and saying it and calling it a day. Yeah. It's So that piece of the puzzle, like business operating systems and, and hiring practices and all those things. So I have a, a, a ton of tools 
that that have been curated over a number of years. We have this great content. We have great coaching, one-on-one coaching and group coaching that we do. And then also we have this community of people that we can create these collisions because I believe that collisions are the catalyst for greatness. If you can put, if you can collide two people like me and Corey, we can do great things together. And then on the acquisition side, specifically my focus in helping people is I can walk people through having done it before I liken it to holding the back of the bike. I think there are a lot of people out there who want to create their own personal wealth and they want to do it through business acquisition or starting their own company somehow or another, I find business acquisition to be a, a shortcut. And so I'd like to help people. My, my personal goal is to create a billion dollars of generational wealth over the next 25 years through business acquisition for other people. I want other people to create generational wealth the way I have. And I'm happy to help somebody from creating your target statement. And you know, what am I really trying to do here? That's phase one. The next step is, okay, let's look at some deals and get to a place where we have a signed LOI. That's phase two. And then I've got a signed LOI. I need to get this deal over the line. That's phase three. And and so I feel like I can provide a little wisdom and experience on that and some coaching to help help individuals acquire companies in that way. I love it. So I, I want a follow-up question there, but you, you said a quote. What was it? Collisions are the catalyst? Collisions are the catalyst for greatness. Catalyst. I, I firmly believe that we're put on this earth to collide with other people. And those collisions are not are not coincidental. They happen for a reason. And when we collide with other people, that's an opportunity for us to do great things. And and I've collided with some really wonderful people that are that that are way above my pay grade, man. And and I'm blessed to be able to do that. And I feel like when those collisions happen, great things come from them. So I I hope to do that for other people too. I love that quote. It's a philosophy I believe in. And I don't think there are any coincidences. Years ago, I read the Celestine Prophecy, which if, if anybody's read that, it's really to oversimplify the message. It, it is that there's no coincidence, coincidences or interaction is for a reason. But I mm. love that. I love the way you phrase that. That's phenomenal. So I literally <laughs> was, I, usually I'm very focused, but I said, I need to get that down. But, um, so in any case, going back to your your point about working with, with folks to go through through deals. One, listen, the, the fundamental premise of why I started this podcast four and a half plus years ago and being a, being an entrepreneur, being a corporate deal lawyer, being a, being a, it's all, all the stuff I do. I, I see so many, so many, I've been a member of entrepreneurs organization for 15 years now. I see so many companies, successful companies, entrepreneurs have built, you know, companies that are a million dollars and above revenue, right? Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's creating something. And so many of them are doing it all on organic growth. Right. And then if you if you can have strong organic growth and sales and marketing and provide great products and services and get more customers, another client, another customer, another client, another customer, that's a great business. You should do that. But being a deal guy, right? And not just MA, but joint ventures, strategic alliances, licensing deals, on online affiliate deals, joint marketing deal, whatever it is, I've seen this other way to grow. And there's a much smaller percentage of the companies, certainly at the main street and lower middle market level, that actually there's a much smaller percentage of the companies that actually take advantage of that. So one of the things I, I want to ask you about, and listeners may be getting tired of me mentioning this, but I think it's so important that I'm never going to stop. Because I think the first thing that has to happen for somebody to do anything different, whether it's become an entrepreneur if they're an employee or become a deal maker if they're an entrepreneur or whatever, is a mindset shift, right? Mm-hmm. And totally. it's an, obviously is learning. If you don't, haven't done deals before, you got to learn about it. But before you, there are plenty of people who get plenty of information and still don't do it. In the coaching that you've done, 
Talk to me about what are you acknowledging and agreeing on the mindset shift. So talk about that mindset shift. What does it take and what entrepreneurs and business leaders go through and maybe, and some don't make that shift and something to be a little Yeah, totally. It's a really interesting, sometimes I feel like I'm a hammer looking for a nail, right? Like every solution that I have has to do with buying a company. So I've got a, I've got a guy that I work with who owns a manufacturing company in San Diego and he sends his, he sends a bunch of his parts out to be water, to be cut by water jet. And his team wants him to buy a water jet machine, but he keeps sending this stuff out to the water jet guy. And I'm like, why don't you buy the water jet guy? And he's, I'm like, now all of a sudden it's no longer a cost center. Right. It's a profit center, right? Because you, and now you, you've got customers that are coming over with that water jet business. You're not the only customer, hopefully. And right. all of a sudden it's, it, and he's, I never thought about that. And I'm like, again, I am a bit of a hammer looking for a nail, but I think there's, I think that a lot of times, and, and especially in, in a tight labor market like we are in, and yes. are we officially in a tight labor market? I don't know, but it feels yes. there's a grab for talent, right? And so when if you're a construction company and you need mechanical talent and you subcontract all your mechanical work, is there an opportunity to, instead of hiring a guy who's mechanical, to buy a company that's a mechanical company? I, I think so. I think those opportunities exist. And I think you just... You just have to be willing to bend the normal and the normal is to go and hire for it or train for it or expand organically into, okay, now we're going to do, if I stay on the construction path, now we're not only going to do general contracting, but we're also going to do our own mechanical work. And the way we do that is we hire this guy from another mechanical player and he does all the MEP stuff and whatever. Well, why don't you buy the MEP company? And now all of a sudden you've got this in-house. And you bring, you're bringing customers with you with that deal, but you're also able to afford some economy for yourself because now you're, now your MEP part of your construction, your general contracting work is cheaper because you're doing it in-house. So yeah, I, I think that there are a number of situations where people don't think that way and the opportunity to bend their mind a little bit, to me, is a lot of fun because yeah. I can put that out there and challenge people to think that way. But I think the opportunity is real, man. I think that there's, I think there's, and I, and presumably a strategic buyer in that manner, even I use the term strategic pretty loosely because you're usually a small business buying another small business, but, but a strategic buyer can, you can generate cost savings that probably wouldn't be there. And it's somebody coming from the outside to buy the company. So maybe they can pay a little bit more. So uh, I love the idea. I love the, I, I think that. There are there, especially in a in the labor situation that we're in right now, that that might be the, the easiest solution to to expansion in a natural way. Yeah, yeah, and we're seeing that a lot. It's a great point. There there are many potential reasons as people do deals or incentives to do deals. Some could be geographical expansion, could be just getting larger for the purpose of increasing multiple. If you're going to look to exit, yep. it could be, but but deals now to acquire talent are because of the, the anytime this tight labor market that starts to happen and and it's and it's interesting yeah a lot of times that that's a big motivator and sometimes they're having a deal sometimes we talked on this uh, podcast about a deal that's sometimes referred to as an aqua hire which is position mm-hmm. like it was an acquisition even though it was really just hiring a bunch of folks giving them a position yeah. maybe giving them a piece of the action there are a lot of ways to structure these deals that where you can get talent in a way where you're not just looking to hire folks who are looking for a job because we all know that this is not universally true but the truth is that really you have a better chance of getting 
quality talent if they're actually not looking for a job, right? If they yeah, don't, no, but they no are. Question. And those people are hard, harder to find through recruiting. And certainly if you buy them now, there's a whole separate conversation, which we don't have time to get into about probably integrating and yeah. making those oh, yeah. people feel comfortable and having them stay and not losing them after the fact. Cultural, cultural issues and all that stuff. Absolutely. No, you're right. We'll do that. We'll do that on the next show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because then we could spend a whole you know, podcast on that. Any final, before I ask you my final two questions, any final sort of thoughts or tips or things in your experience in, when working with so many folks in, in terms of this stuff? No, I think that, I, I think that it's, I think that a lot of the experts and a lot of the guys you might follow on social media and all that kind of stuff, they say sexy things that make it sound really easy. And it's not easy. It's relatively simple. If you lay out the the process is simple, but it ain't easy. Yeah. And and I'm a believer that if you if I if you're going to go through a, an acquisition and you've never done it before, having somebody help help guide you through that process, who's not going to take ninety percent of the company from you in the process, is can help you can increase the odds of getting a deal done. And in the end, getting a deal done is what we want to do. And and having somebody, I like the metaphor of holding some, the back of the bike until such time that person's ready to pedal on their own. And I think that's really, I think there's value to that. Jeff, if people want to find out more about your coaching you know, services and how you can help them, where do they go? That's great. I, I appreciate that that question. I Certainly, they can contact me directly. My, my email address and cell phone number, frankly, contact me straight away. Find me on LinkedIn and those kinds of things. My my website for our coaching business is flawlessacceleration.com. And my personal acquisition business is under thayergateproject.com, T-H-A-Y-E-R gateproject.com. Thanks. Thanks. So you'll all that'll be in the show notes if you're driving or whatever. But listen, you can see the value here and obviously just a huge amount of experience that Jeff has, and, and so definitely reach out. My final question on the program is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from oppression for all people in the world to why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and haven't had a boss. What does yeah. freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? That's a terrific question. I, I would take it on two levels as well. Obviously, having spent some time serving our country and really being, more importantly, being around other veterans, freedom, freedom to move, freedom to say what we what we feel and without judgment and without being attacked i think those that freedom is something that i'm blessed to to have spent some time protecting as a young person but also even more blessed to be around people who have done it themselves i also help with west point admissions right now too so it's fun to be around young people who are interested in in providing that freedom to to us in the future on a personal level Financial freedom is something that we all long for, and we do that through building generational wealth. And that freedom is not about, for me, is not about buying material things. It's about experiences and being able to help other people enjoy those freedoms as well. I'm in the business of, like I said, my personal goal of building generational wealth for others. I will do that. And it doesn't mean that I have to help 6,000 people. I can help six and we can, and I can help six a year. And if I can do that, I feel like I'm chipping away at helping other people find that freedom. Love it. Jeff Everson, thanks for being such a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thanks, Corey. Appreciate being here. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. 
Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.